Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Inside LA Long Beach Sunday Sit. My name is Casey. So, well, this is like part two of uh, practice instructions. Um, last week we started out uh, with posture, motivation, taking refuge, and I think we got a little bit into the Brahma Viharas, into the heart practices. And um, so we'll do a little bit of review, and then we're going to move on to shamatha and vipassana, concentration and insight today. And so a little bit of review is that we're putting together a sadhana. So by these, um, so you know, Tibetan Buddhism and maybe other ones, they our, our practice feels a sadhana. And, and in Buddhism... Um, the meditations don't stand alone. You just don't come in and then start meditating. You want to bring in the the whole view, the whole system, basically, of the practice we bring into the actual session. So the entire system is support for each and every practice. And so in a traditional sadhana, when we come and do our practice, we want to hit upon the different elements of the practice as we go. So taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We want to fold that into the practice. And it's because when we start to meditate, we're going to have to take refuge in something <laughs> because meditation stuff's going to come up, yeah? And usually we're used to taking refuge outside of ourselves, yeah? So where do we take refuge now or usually? It's something outside of ourselves, so we have to be with to make a commitment. You know, I'm actually going, going going to take refuge within my own Buddha nature, within myself. Yeah. So this is important to bring in these elements to the actual uh, actual practice. And uh, we started off with posture. Who wants to give a little summary of the posture that we went over last week, or you could popcorn style? What are some of the important pieces of posture. Balancing on your spine? Or balancing... Balancing the spine on the, the pelvis. On the pelvis. Yeah. That's what I meant. Right? <laughs> the hips should be higher than your knees. Right, exactly. And to do that, we want the hips above the knees, because if not, then we're kind of stuck in a V, and the spine won't be able to balance. Right? But if our hips are above your knees, so I'm sitting wrong. Right? Because the chair has this another thing you don't want any arms, yeah? So you want hips above your knees. So if the hips are above your knees, then you can balance like so. So that's why you put cushions underneath. Also sitting um you know, sitting on your knees with the, no one's doing it now, but with a pillow uh or a or a bench like Linda has a bench, this works well. What else? And posture. We don't all need to do it now because we're not all meditating, but just so we know. Open heart. Open heart. So to get this, you know, open up the chest, thumbs pointing upward, bringing the the palms back down in the thighs. Keep an open chest. And also this helps with the curvature of the spine. So we get to 
um, rest in the natural state of, of the spine. And the key here is that you want to be held up by your skeleton. So if you keep this in mind, I want to be held up by my skeleton. So if you feel like the muscles are holding you up, then we know there's some kind of strain in the body. Yeah? What else? Chin slightly down. The chin usually, yeah, so the chin, the head resting on the top of the spine. And if you, if you balance it out, it usually ends up with the chin is slightly down. It's up to, you know, kind of see it where it feels for you. Then Drop another, the shoulders. The shoulders. Drop them like don't have them. Just open. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't want them to, to slump either, though. Like I was saying, like, if you're, if you meditate for quite a while, you want the shoulders to be supported. So somebody on your lap is really nice to kind of hold your frame. It's nice. And then for, for the, for the sitting bones, you want three points of contact. You want your sitting bones and then the knees. So like Soleil here, so she's got her sitting bones and then the knees are on the ground. Right? So three points of contact. So then like Anthony here, he's got what we call, he's a perfect example of a floating knee. Yep, yep floating. floating knee. <laughs> Get that fish in the of him. So this is no problem. So then we just put a cushion beneath the knee. Oh, and so you build up a throne. Yeah? <laughs> and now technically, for him to sit for a while, now his hips are slightly below his knees, you can keep building up your throne. So if he took that cushion, sit, sit on that. <laughs> and this is totally, this is totally okay. You see? <laughs> Down in front. I know. There's a thing in Tibet where, um, whatever teacher is sitting highest is like the, the more uh, renowned teacher, you know? So they'd always put the teacher up on a, you know, on a pedestal, you know? And so, but when they'd have different teachers come, um, the students would try to get their teacher higher than the other teacher. So they would, like in a sneaky way, Goman, and they slip in another cushion to their teacher, so their teacher was a little higher. You know? So Anthony's just elevating. Up. He's a good teacher. Great teacher. The eyes. The eyes. Eyes could be half open. Half open, all the way open. Maybe not all the way closed. Not so good, because we get daydreamy. So at least a little bit of light coming in. Yeah? Tongue at the roof of the mouth. Tongue of the roof of the mouth. Good. So tongue, tongue of the roof of the mouth has an energetic principle to this also during long meditations. It kind of helps with um, like the consistent swallowing. So sometimes we have to swallow our, our saliva a lot. So sometimes it helps <clears throat> with the tongue of the roof of the mouth. So posture is really important because we want to have some sense of ease in our body. We could take discomfort in the body as the object of meditation, but that gets old after a while, <laughs> like, let's face it. Um, yeah, so we, want to, so we want to be held up so we could forget about the body. After a while, if your, bo if your posture is really nice, 
then the you know not really thinking of the body at all so we also went over um, and I want to reiterate this and kind of emphasize this a little bit we went over motivation and intention so after taking refuge you're in your good posture take refuge Buddha Dharma Sangha and these are all elements of what's inside of ourselves we have our inner Buddha our Buddha nature the Dharma is the teaching Dharma obviously means truth in Sanskrit, but the truth is inside of ourselves. And then Sangha, so we're taking refuge in the Sangha, which is all of us, the spiritual friends, but we're also befriending ourself. Yeah? And then motivation, intention, why are we doing it? So if you're going on a journey, even if you have a really fast car, but you don't know where you're going, you're going to go to the wrong place very fast. <laughs> and we could do this like with meditation. You know, and this is not a bad thing, but you know, they teach, they teach mindfulness now at... Um, they teach the Marines. You know, they're teaching it now at Camp Pendleton. Maybe a little different motivation than, than us. And um, it's not, you know, they're working with really you know, wholesome intention there, not to like make better warriors, but to help with PTSD and all these things. It's really good. It's really good. Yet our intention matters. Like what we bring into the practice, we wake up into the fruition of that intention. And so to cultivate a strong sense of bodhicitta, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, is one nice altruistic view of why we're meditating. Like I've said before, we can meditate for stress relief, but then what happens when we're not stressed anymore? Yeah, you can stop practicing. When we have good samsara, we notice good samsara, we stop practicing. When life is good, don't eat it. Then we stop. <coughs> Yet, old age, sickness, and death, the heavenly messengers are still there. So we're not, we're not free. So... Depending on how you look at it, the Buddha taught one thing. He taught non-grasping mind, and he taught bodhicitta. So bodhicitta, this selflessness, leads to non-grasping mind. Non-grasping mind leads to selflessness. You see, the end goal really is this, this selfless love and compassion. So we cultivate that. We cultivate this love and compassion as our methodology, like how to get there, but it's also right view, it's also the end goal. The end goal is also the selflessness. So we generate, we call relative bodhicitta, and then we arrive through this relative bodhicitta, this cultivation, then we could arrive into ultimate bodhicitta. <coughs> ultimate bodhicitta is a realization that we're all connected and there's there's no way that I'm free until all beings are free. There's no, there's no difference anymore. So the actual practice, um, meditation and the idea of practice is very broad. I'm going to just really simplify it into three different elements. Concentration. Shamatha, also called shamatha, concentration, vipassana or insight, and the heart, the heart practices or Brahma Viharas. 
Now these three elements, there's a lot of different recipes, but these are the three elements. These are three major elements of the practice. It's kind of like Mexican food. You know, you have like your rice and the beans, guacamole, chicken, and then you can get that in a burrito, you can get that in a taco, tostada, or whatever. It's all the same stuff, but just in different ways. So sometimes we get kind of confused on what's a different way. You know, oh, it's like this, or it's like this, or like this. You know, it's a lot of the same stuff. Concentration. Inside, heart practice, so, so many different techniques, a lot of the same stuff. So it's really important with our crazy monkey mind to settle in on one of the practices. If we're practicing shamatha, concentration, stick with one thing and really just go deep with it. You don't need to keep bouncing around. So coming back into beginner's mind, concentration. In, in Tibetan, they call it shine, or calm abiding. Shi means calm, peacefulness, just at easeness. Shine, ne, abiding. Calm abiding. So we're abiding. So this concentration, when we say concentration, I feel like in the West we have this really firm concentration. I got to concentrate. People say, I can't concentrate. My mind's crazy, all over the place, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> Shine, calm abiding. That's very different. Can you, can you uh, do pra practice calm abiding? Maybe. <laughs> Concentration seems really strong and really firm. So we want to move into the practice with this sense of ease. It's calm, and we're resting in something very natural. Calm abiding is our natural state. So we're taking... Refuge that and faith that, oh, my natural state is calm abiding. So concentration is really coming back into something that's already there and very effortless. But it takes effort to be effortless, but we're coming back so in this very calm way. If you notice awareness, awareness is uncultivated. We check into awareness, you notice awareness hanging out waiting for us. All we have to do is simply notice it, and it's already there. So this is kind of a direction for a little bit different practice of shamatha, but a, a bit more advanced sometimes. But you say, don't meditate, but don't become distracted. You see how light as a feather that is? Just notice. Even throughout the meditation, the meditator... Light as a feather. So coming back to beginner's mind for a moment, what are we doing for concentration? Concentration, we're simply taking an anchor. We're giving the mind an anchor. That could even be the mind itself. We're giving it something to come back to. When the mind wanders away, we notice that the mind has wandered, wandered away. There's two faculties of mind that allow us to do this. Now throw out these terms here of concentration and mindfulness for a moment. I'm talking about faculties of mind. So one is concentration as a faculty of mind. Concentration holds the mind down on something. It's like a blanket. It holds the mind down. 
mindfulness is the vigilance, it's the watcher. It notices when the mind has gone astray. It's always watching. Mindfulness, where am I? Where am I? Mindfulness is watching. Am I on the object or have I gone away? When we catch ourselves wandering, that's the moment of mindfulness. It's really revolutionary, that moment we catch ourselves and we release. When we, seek, when we say non-grasping mind, it's that release of that thought. We call it liberating the thought. But in that liberating the thought, we liberate ourselves. In that one instance, Garchan Rinpoche used to say, the moment you release a thought, you become a Buddha. You become infinite potentiality. No more collapse down into a finite way than just subject-object. It's amazing. Just that release right there. And then coming back. Then when you come back, concentration takes back over. Concentration holds the mind down. Mindfulness, mindfulness is in the background watching. Where am I? Where am I? Did I lose it? Oh, I lost it. Of course, we wake up like three minutes later <laughs> in, a, in a total daydream, right? I lost it. Come back. Yeah? Returning, staying. Returning, staying. Returning, staying. Mindfulness needs to be mindful of something, but it doesn't matter what. So this is, again, the, sub, the anchor can change. The anchor is going to change, and in a progressive order which will go over the order, it'll change into more subtle and subtle anchors. So the key here, too, is the flavor in which we're, we're doing this practice, the flavor in which is with a sense of kindness and a sense of non-judgment. We're, we're going to meet a lot of stuff, like as we're doing this practice, we're going to meet a lot of, we could say debris, but not in a bad way, just stuff, you know? And we want to meet all of that stuff with a sense of kindness. If we don't meet it with kindness, we're not going to be able to hold it. We're not going to be able to, to kind of extract ourselves from it or actually move into the next piece, which is the papasana or insight piece, because to know, which means to know the true nature of something. So this example um, I use quite a bit, but I'll reiterate, is that if you have a dear friend, if you're in a discussion with a dear friend, when they're talking, you're meeting it with a sense of friendliness. Right? Even if they're saying something that you don't agree with, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt for now. <laughs> you're like, oh, they're my buddy. You know? Now, if you're talking with somebody who you don't really get along with, you notice that you might be on edge. You're meeting it with a, oh my God, they're about to say something I don't like. <laughs> it's like there's this tension. <clears throat> For most of us, we have that tension in ourself. Like, oh my God, if I sit <laughs> myself long enough, I'm going to meet something I don't like. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, it's going to come. And this is like, 
this uncomfortable nature of meditation of like, why don't we want to sit with ourselves? You know? If we want to do, some people, I mean, some people you say, let's do a, like an all-day meditation, and everyone's like, yeah, cool. And then some people are like, kind of scary, you know, kind of scary. So we're meeting it, the flavor that we're meeting this with loving kindness, non-judgment, right? Every time we catch ourselves, if we're judging or even judging the judging, every time we catch ourselves, it's not going to work out so well. So the idea, moving into whatever you noticed where the mind has went, meet it with non-judgment. It's not good, not bad. No attachment, like I want you to stay. No aversion, I need you to go. Not even accepting, no accepting, no rejecting. Just noticing. And we could do this. Awareness is doing it right now. Awareness is not judging the moment. The awareness is not saying this is good or bad, this could stay, this can go. Consciousness itself is automatically free and unfettered, right? It's just open. Embedded in that awareness, you could see loving kindness working its magic, which is also unconditional accepting of everything as it is. You see the merging of those two in open awareness. But we love to jump in and glob on. Even the dialogue of the meditation, am I doing it right? Am I coming back right? Am I non-judgmental enough? I kind of was judgmental in that moment, but uh, now I'm judgmental. Now, wait, hold on. Now I'm talking to myself. Now I'm going to come back down to back to the meditation. Okay, I'm here. Wow, I've been here for like 20 seconds already. My mind is so clear right now. I'm almost, you know. So that's just another thought. You just notice all that. And that's not a problem. And all of that, that chatter, that kind of static, it'll die down after a while because we're not feeding it. All of that stuff takes food. The food of your attention. The more that we give it attention, the more it breathes, right? Now, it's those thoughts, those thoughts that come, how much do they weigh? How much does a thought weigh? Huh? It's a bowling ball. It's a bowling ball. How much do they feel like it weighs? Some thoughts feel like they weigh a lot. Yeah? Some thoughts, maybe not so much. So, what gives them the weight? Huh? All the same. Karma, attachment, attention, all the same. Yeah? The good news, like the epiphany, is that it's us. You know, it, it's, um, and not in, a, not in a judgmental way again, but we're giving it the weight. In and of itself, no weight. A very negative thought, no weight. Yet believing in that thought, Lots of weight. Believing in it, enhancing it with, with this belief, then lots of weight. So the practice of this non-judgmental mind, continual practice, those thoughts begin to become starved. They're starved of attention. 
I could be with you, and it's not detachment either. I could be with you, but not follow you. <coughs> See, that's like the rub, right? Because people are like, well, how could I be with something, you know, and actually move into it, yet not follow it? You know, this is the practice. Awareness allows us to do this all the time. Compassion allows us to do this all the time. That everything, letting everything in, very sketchy. <laughs> letting everything in, but with, with wisdom and compassion, we're, do, we're doing this skillfully and maybe throttling things in gently. Letting everything in, letting everything out. Letting everything in, letting everything out. So watching coming back. So this returning and staying and in this little interchange here, there's a lot going on. Yeah? And so this is where all this skillful means. So we just notice, okay, I'm meeting this with non-judgment. I'm meeting this with kindness. And I'm coming back. So this is like the very essence of, of concentration. Of shamatha, the very essence of just returning and staying, returning and staying. Now, the the amount of effort between the concentration and mindfulness in the beginning, it's like 80-20 concentration. Like it takes it takes some oomph in the beginning because the mind is unruly. So when we talk about the balance, like meditation not too loose, not too tight. The mind in the beginning, if you notice, it has to be pretty strong and forceful. Like, I'm going to stay on the object. As the mind becomes more calm, it takes less effort to notice or to bring the mind back. Because the mind is more stable. And in the end, it takes almost nothing but just mindfulness just noticing like where am I so this is good to know kind of where your mind's at and this could differ from meditation to meditation if you sit down and your meditation and your mind's ah all over the place you think you know I might have to exert a little bit more mental effort here to stay and to notice coming back so this shamatha practice, many different objects, many different objects, the categories of objects, or the categories of focus. And again, this sequence differs from tradition to tradition to tradition. But I'll just, I'll just give you an example. This is how I was taught in, in the Karmakagi lineage, Tibetan Buddhism from Mingyur Rinpoche. And in his book, did I bring it? So talk about how it differs. He's got a, his book, Joyful Wisdom. It's actually different than how it's in the book. He teaches it different than how he teaches it in person. <laughs> he starts off with the end in the book. He's like, what? one way, but, um, which is very Tibetan. But Western, I think when you teach Westerners, they do the opposite. So you start off with, Shamatha with support or object with object. 
And then you move into without support or choiceless awareness. And then you move into just the mind, like true nature of mind. And with support comes in two ways, external and internal. So external support is using the senses like the eyes so you can meditate on a Buddha statue, a rose, something outside of yourself. This one to me has really gotten lost because if you look in like a lot of Hindu practices, a lot of practices from ancient India, which of course Buddhism is, a lot of times, this is where it started, external. In the Theravada tradition too, they would have many different types of external supports for their meditations. We kind of skip that. I don't know why now. We just kind of skip it. But it's really good for the mind to, to just focus on something outside of yourself. It's very, it has a lot of um, potential to anchor us because, you know, when we close our eyes and move into the breath, we're kind of in fantasy land, you know? <laughs> but coming in to the mind, out, um, coming into something, concentrating on something outside of yourself, very stabilizing. So this is concentration with object externally. Then meditation with object internally. So this is the one that we're most accustomed to. So this would be... Um, What's the most common one? Breath. 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 Why do we meditate on the breath? It's always there. It's always there, if you're lucky. <laughs> Sorry, always was so wrong. <laughs> it comes more subtle as your mind calms down. Yes, it could take you into more subtle realms, if you will, because it becomes more subtle. Mm-hmm. What else? Sensations. Exactly. Yeah, connecting with the body. Exactly. So the Buddha would say, mm -hmm. if you're not, if you can't, if you don't meditate on the body, there's no way to become enlightened. When we say breath meditation, in the beginning, we're not saying breath as like the air. It's actually, it's a body meditation. And this is cause for some confusion too. Because you say, okay, breath meditation. Where's my breath? You know, it's just, it's air. So it's very important to, to notice that it is a body sensation practice. We're meditating on the body sensations caused by the movement of breath. And what are the three major areas of the body that we feel that sensation caused by the movement of breath. The nose. Chest. Chest. Belly. Belly. So everyone has their preferences on which one. Um, if, you, if you're agitated or have any sense like anxiety, absolutely without a doubt move straight to your abdomen. The diaphragmatic breathing is used in like ancient Tibet, ancient India, into modern day psychology. And it has to do with your chi, you know, bringing your life force, your prana, your ki down into your abdomen. 
works wonders if you feel some anxiety. And remember <laughs> to put your attention here on the sensations caused by the movement of breath, and that'll bring your energy there. It's really, really comforting. Um, I personally like the tip of the nose. The sensations, like as the as the air, as the breath moves through the soft tissue of the nose, because it's very succinct. It's like very narrow, right? So I can come back. It's very strong to come back. So both of those are strong. I would say the chest is the most subtle, and we have to be careful there too, because as um, as a society, we're shallow chest breathers. And this leads to some kind of congestion here, like anxiety. <laughs> Shallow chest breathing, not allowing the breath to go down to the abdomen. You know, as a baby breathes, the baby will breathe. When you inhale, the abdomen comes out. Exhale, the abdomen floats back towards the spine. But we live in, live in Southern California. We would never allow our abdomen to go out. <laughs> Yeah. When I do that, I have a total ba a beer, ba a beer baby, you know, <laughs> baby right there. <coughs> Ask Katie. Um, so, um, if if you if this is what feels right to you, for sure, go ahead and use it. I usually recommend either of those two. So very strong anchors. So, yeah, for sure. Oh, it's fine. It's yeah, yeah. It's not like, I guess it's not a distraction. I was, it was easy to focus on because it almost seemed louder than my breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fine. I think um, the only thing is when we're in meditation, when we're grabbed by something other than the object that we started with, we just want to be careful with why we're moving there. Um, and if we continue to bounce around, you know, so just want to keep an idea that I, I could be here and this is really nice for now. Um, but not so much with the mind saying, Hey, let's do this and let's do that. You know, that kind of a thing so that you just, you want to go deep and the mind will always want to jump to something else. But, um, but yeah, that's fine. So let me see. So I might want to. Let me just say a few words about Vipassana because I know kind of. I want to leave, leave some room. You want to just in there and just do some Q&A? Or do you want to say a few words on Vipassana? A few words. Okay. Vipassana, because Vipassana is quite confusing to most people. And it's kind of, it is kind of confusing. Um. Vipassana means insight, and it's insight into the nature of things. The confusing part is, what's insight meditation? Like, how do you practice Vipassana as opposed to what we just talked about, shamatha, right? What's the difference? And in some traditions, 
it's an it's an evolve it's unraveling out of shamatha and there's there's not a lot of difference in the actual application of the meditation but the insights be, when you become stable in mind so you you practice meditative stability with shamatha then as you as the mind is stable insights become start to arise and flourish out of that stability. This is insight. Then you're gaining insights. And I'm just going to read a couple things from, from various teachers. In some schools, it's more pronounced. What I mean by that is, let's say if you're meditating on emotion, you start to analyze the true nature of emotion. And you could say, where does emotion come from? Where does it abide? Where does it go? This emotion, this fear, where is it in the body? What shape is it? What color is it? What texture is it? Does it stay here for a while? Does it go? Does it all this? You see, so Vipassana is anything where you're gaining insight into the true nature of something. And we're doing that through the stabilization of mind. Meditation, one of the oldest translations of meditation is to become familiar with. It's really a vipassana, to become familiar with. Now, ultimately, we're coming familiar with ourselves. Like, this is what we're kind of doing it for, yeah? This is, like, where we're taking. And we're coming together in a very kind of far-reaching end goal type of way. Coming into relation with our non-selves. <laughs> Yeah, the, the true nature of ourselves, which is which is non-existent from its own side, and this is really cutting the root of suffering. This is real liberation. So liberation in this way through like the vipassana and looking at the true nature of self, it's sometimes an enlightenment and things like this or liberation. We have this idea of like a blissful state, but it's more of non-suffering. when we see the true nature of this, and this is the, the peace and the contentment comes with this truly no need to suffer. This is not suffering anymore. I'll give you a really small example. It's like a five minute, no self apasana thing. But um, you're, shopping for, you're shopping for clothes. You find a shirt that you really, really like. You think it'll be look good on you. You take it off the rack, you put it to the side for a moment, you shopping, keep shopping a little bit. Somebody comes up behind you, they grab it. They grab the shirt. Feel that? <laughs> Feel that? <laughs> That's self. <laughs> right there. Grasping mind. Attachment. All right there. That's mine. Me, mine, mine. It's not even yours yet. <laughs> but you see, it didn't have to be ours yet financially. It was conceptual. You see, we imputed on top of shirt that was inherently existing 
with no label. It was nothing. It was empty. We imputed mine on top of something that wasn't there. And by that imputation, because of that imputation on top of something that wasn't there, when that was taken away, we suffered. You see that? Because our mindness was taken away. Not anymore. Like that. So like Autumn Tupton's book, No Self, No Problem, says it all. So Vipassana is looking into the true nature of self. And when we see it, not like we don't exist, we totally exist firmly here, no problem. Just not in the way that we think we do. As this permanent fixed self, yeah? When we align ourselves with that, when we get insight into that, no suffering. So you see that if, if someone walked behind you and took the shirt and you turned and say, you know what, I think that would look good on you too. <laughs> you know what, you have it. Non-suffering. You see that? Oh man, so much more joy other than that attachment. Mm. Other than that, oh, I gotta have it. Now, what's that? Ah, sense a sense of joy and peacefulness. Now think of that in all the different areas of our life that we could apply that to. A sense of ease and a sense of joy, a sense of freedom, a sense of liberation. Yeah? All of that. So this, this is where we're going with, with Vipassana, is to understand self in, in that way in that way of non-division, non you know? Yeah. Um, let me just read a couple of things. Essentially, unfortunately, I forgot to write down some of these sources. Some are just from my notes. <clears throat> the Pali term from insight meditation is Vipassana, Bhavana. Bhavana comes from the root ba, which means to grow or to become. Therefore, bhavana means to cultivate, and the world is always, and the word is always used in reference to the mind. Bhavana means mental cultivate, cultivation. Vipassana is derived from two roots. Vipassana means seeing or perceiving. V is a prefix with a co complex set of connotations. The basic meaning is in a special way. But there's also the connotation of both into and through. The whole meaning of the word is looking into something with clarity and precision. Seeing each component as distinct and piercing all the way through so as to perceive the most fundamental reality of that thing. This process leads to insight into the basic reality of whatever is being inspected. <coughs> Put it all together and Vipassana Bhavana means the cultivation of the mind aimed at seeing in the special way that leads to insight and full understanding. Essentially, Vipassana means to see the nature of reality, but seeing here does not mean with the eyes, ears, or conceptual mind. It must slowly become a direct experience where we start to unglue from the stickiness of our destructive emotions by seeing through the very solidified perception of self that experiences them. I believe that was Mika Rinpoche there. So I want to leave...
for for questions. Well, we have um, time for like one <laughs> one question for the group. Then it was fast on the draw. So could you talk a little bit about choiceless awareness? Because I remember going to a Vipassana treatment retreat many years ago, and we we learned like, oh, start with the breath at the tip of the nose, then body scan, and now like when I sit, I feel like. I thought I was, I'm not sure what I'm doing because I'm kind of like aware of all of those body sensation things. And so now I'm kind of feeling that maybe I I need to be just breath or just in in the concentration phase of it, but but I'm not sure what choiceless awareness really is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all part of the concentration piece with your, so that would be without object. Okay. Yeah, so, so the so idea of like object. I notice this pain and now I notice this sound or is that Yeah, and you're anchoring back into awareness itself though. Okay. So objectless is um, as things move throughout your awareness, but there is this emphasis that awareness itself. So aware of awareness. Okay. So this is kinda of like your home base because there could be for a moment nothing. So let's say there's nothing in your in that moment. There's just nothing that arises naturally into your awareness, mm-hmm. and then you, but you're aware of awareness, so that becomes your anchor point, and then things come in and out. So cars moving by, all this stuff, but you just keep coming back. But you notice it within that container. So you have awareness, but everything's arising within awareness. So it can become very like holistic in experience too. See like awareness, and then everything's the contents of the awareness. Those contents are infused with awareness. Awareness is infused in the contents. So it's at rest. You see, you're not focusing on anything, but things naturally arise in the awareness, like the sound of the air conditioning, you see? So the part about mindfulness is an uncultivated object. So in other other, um, styles of meditation, like a mantra, a mantra, you cultivate a mantra, and then you focus on it. You know, it's cultivated. A visualization practice is you cultivate the object, you, the visualization, and then you're meditating on the visualization. Mindfulness is you're taking the, the actual moment as a support. The breath is actually happening naturally, right? And then sounds arise naturally. And then so you're aware of that in its totality. You just awake to that without object. And this is moving more towards just the nature of mind uh, practices. And this is, so the concentration aspect never leaves. So your, you know, shamatan object, externally, internal, like the breath. And then you could could practice shamatha concentration on just maintaining awareness itself. Okay. I just feel like I'm not always sure if I'm doing, am I doing it right? (laughs) That's why this one is at the end. Okay. <laughs> because it's so easy, yet it's very difficult to explain and to know if we're doing it right. Right. You know? Okay. And, and this is exactly why. If you say meditate on a Buddha statue, you're like, meditate on the Buddha. It's easy. And then even the breath gets a little more complicated. Am I, is it here? Is it, you know, where do I go? And then just this. That's even harder <laughs> just to be, you know? But it's true, and so you just keep working with it. And we call this clarifying the natural state. So you clarify it, just like this. 
as you move through it, you, you ask questions, you clarify. Oh, is this it? Is this it? Wow. Um, one question. Okay, we'll do one more. <laughs> so, okay. Because we're I've over. Been, I've been studying Zen, Zazen, at, at yeah. a place in Costa Mesa. So and there's two types of meditation in Zen. Yeah. You know, they're both what you're talking about because they came from what you're talking about, right? Yeah. The, the same school of thought, you know, across the channel between China and Japan, right? So basically, the samurai study one of those, which is awareness of the room. Right, like you're talking about, like awareness outside, because they are warriors and they want to know what comes in, and they became they became these harsh people, and then they became these these, these practical people that studied music. So originally, I started focusing on my breath, and I thought that was for me because I didn't think I could be Mr. Aware because my mind goes off, but then I'm staying in the room, right? And I'm not leaving the room. I'm just focusing on that. So this rightness that you're talking about, forgetting about the rightness, that would be the the, the, the path, right? You forget more about the rightness? Is that, does that make sense? Like you leave the rightness behind you. you just go like forward. whether you're doing it right or not, you're yeah, saying? You're not, you're not focused on that. You're not focusing on the, the judgment, yeah. So just stop doing things. It's really hard. Yeah, well, um, and there's not an, you're not stopping doing it in an aversion way. You know, because there's, there's, there's it's easy to fall into aversion, which means I don't want to think, you know, or I don't want judgment to arise. But see, judgment is already falling away the moment it arises. So you don't need to stop it. You just don't need to feed it. You see, it's already automatically falling away. It's its natural state. And so this is the true nature of thought, like we know the nature. Like human nature, what's thought nature? Judgment nature. Judgment nature is already falling away. So there's no stopping it. It's just letting it. Yeah, there's nothing to fight. <laughs> you take away the fighter, even, or even the, con the. There's no fight. Even the even the idea that there's something to fight. You know, we're moving into like this battle or something. It's not a battle. You know, it's kind of like we're trying to dig ourselves out of a ditch. There's no ditch. <laughs> you know, but we think we got to dig ourselves out. It's just resting. It really is. It's just in this attitude of resting. Yeah. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.